Turn to Isaiah 13. I will not read at the beginning of this morning's sermon. I don't think you want me to read 10 chapters, but I will refer to several of the verses along the way. So you may want to set your Bible and Isaiah 13 in your lap or beside you for a little later on. My boss, my old boss, taught me a great question. When we were discussing some sticky organizational issue, we had a manager who was underperforming or an initiative that was going off the rails and over budget. He'd listen to all the facts that I would present. He'd listen to all the facts that I'd present. We'd go over the details and the plan. And then he would say, okay, and what are you pretending not to know? It's a very clarifying question. What good is it to develop some detailed training plan for someone to follow if you're pretending not to know that the manager in question simply doesn't have the temperament to manage people? Why draw up a budget request for additional funding? Why keep a project alive if deep down you know that it will never have the return that we expected? Families and individuals pretend not to know too. Isn't that what New Year's resolutions are? The gym membership, the exercise equipment, the dress, two sizes, too small. These will motivate us. Graduate school is a cure for aimlessness. Even the ways we think about our own past and what would have been, how close I was, you guys, to the big leagues. <laughs> if not for one unfortunate occurrence. Now, there are many ways that we pretend not to know. But what if I told you that there's one thing that much of the world, the vast majority, pretends not to know? It sounds unlikely. After all, we're in an internet, in an information age. The word would have gotten out. In this age of self-help and self-awareness and self-actualization, wouldn't there be a vast movement of truth to expose this deception? And yet I tell you, it continues. Catalog all the nations of the earth and all their peoples. And a stunning number are pretending not to know one thing. God will judge. Over the next few weeks, I'll preach somewhat thematically from chapters 13 through 24 of Isaiah. But even if you just scan with your eyes the pages of your Bible here, you'll see that promise again and again, God will Judge. Chapter 13, verse 3, God says, I myself have commanded my consecrated ones and summoned my mighty men to execute my anger, my proudly exalting ones. The sound of tumult is on the mountains as of a great multitude, the sound of an uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathering together. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. They come from a distant land, from the end of the heavens, the Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. Who commands the judgment? Verse 3, God says, I, myself, to execute what? God says, my anger. 
Who is mustering? The Lord of hosts. Who is coming? The Lord and the weapons of his indignation. All throughout these chapters, the message is the same. People may pretend not to know, but it's exactly that. It's pretending. Some pretend by saying that God has not made himself clear. They suppress the truth. And not just from these pages or from all the pages of the Bible. They suppress the truth from all creation. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. God has made it clear. They're just pretending not to know. Others pretend by insisting that God is not capable of such wrath. I read a Twitter theologian last week, always dangerous, but he had determined that sovereignty and holiness are incompatible with love. Therefore, he wisely concluded, God is neither sovereign nor holy. Because after all, God is only love. You know, that's an extreme form, a ridiculous form. But the underlying claim is all too common, even among churchgoers. Even among those who wouldn't say it out loud, many live, many even in the church, live as though God will not judge. They have no fear of his judgment, nor do they live with the confident hope of his salvation or any sense of urgency for the lost. They're pretending not to know that God will judge. That God is too loving to judge form is especially harmful. First, of course, because it's factually incorrect. It's just wrong. So says God, at least, in these chapters of Isaiah, in the many other places of Scripture that plainly teach the wrath of his coming in just judgment. But this pretending is also harmful because it's insincere. Let's be honest, when this argument is made that God is too loving to judge, what's really being defended here isn't the love or the nature of God. Anyone seriously concerned with defending the character of God must begin with a right understanding of the scriptures. They must go to his word and his revelation, who God says he is, not who I say he is. What's true is God as he describes himself. Not God as sinful humans want him to be. No, these attempts are not about defending God's honor. They're about defending the speaker's honor. The conviction is not really that God can't judge. It's that I shouldn't be judged. People don't want to change the way they think and live, but believing in this judgment requires it. So rather than admit what few are willing to, that they just don't want this judgment to be true, they dress it up in the language of protecting God's love. They pretend not to know. Isaiah will not pretend. The judgment is coming. It is coming from God, and it is dreadful. The language all throughout these chapters is of complete and utter devastation. No sin will be missed 
or overlooked. Isaiah's text moves through the empires of his day and of history and even into the cosmos itself. There is nowhere for sin to hide. And all throughout this, God speaks relentlessly in first-person pronouns. Verse 22, I will rise up against them. 23, I will sweep with the broom of destruction. 25, I will break, bring low. You see, this judgment doesn't come from an impersonal universe. It comes as the deliberate action of an all-powerful, all-sovereign, all-holy God. Kids, you guys are probably seeing, like I am, the non-stop commercials about how climate change is going to destroy the earth. I accept that global temperatures are rising. I believe strongly that we need to be good stewards of the world that God has made. But do you know what I cannot believe? That mankind can make the earth uninhabitable. Because God is in control of the world that he's made. And I read the news reports that warn daily of Iran and China and North Korea and Russia and their possession of nuclear weapons. And yes, mankind has the capacity to do great harm. But mankind cannot bring about a nuclear apocalypse. Why? Because God is in control of the universe that he's made. And the end of this world, the the fiery cataclysmic judgment, the apocalypse of this world will not come with our action or our timing, whether purposeful or accidental. It will end when it gives way to a new creation, when he comes to judge the living and the dead and not one moment before. And I say that because the most terrifying thing to us should not be these man-made possibilities, but rather God's description of what Isaiah calls in chapters 23 and 25, the day of desolation and destruction. These descriptions, they're filled with metaphors They're still useful. They're still properly terrible. Chapter 21, for example, it's filled with language of chaos. The oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea. Wilderness. Whirlwinds and the Negev sweep on. It comes from the wilderness, from a terrible land. Verse 2, a stern vision. What is it? I, God, will bring to an end. Verse 3, Anguish, pangs, bow down, blind death. Verse 4, heart staggers, horror, trembling. This is bad stuff. And chapter 24 describes this kind of judgment as for the whole earth. Listen to this. The earth will, sorry, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. He will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. Oh, okay, but but who will be affected? Don't worry unless you fall on this list. Layman, priests, master, maid, buyer, seller, lender, borrowers, the earth shall be utterly empty. For the Lord has spoken this word. 
that language, especially in chapter 24, is intended to evoke a sense of the, the undoing of creation. Creation that was chaos, that was formless and void before the Lord brought order and structure and beauty and life to it. Is in this judgment undone, a kind of, a kind of emptiness through destruction is brought forth once again. Why? Why must this be? How can it be? After all, even those who are pretending are correct that God is love. So why must this judgment take place? How could it? Lots of places in these passages and throughout Scripture give the answer. Let's look at chapter 24, verse 5. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Why is the world condemned? Because the world is guilty. This punishment is not arbitrary. It's the consequence of a broken covenant, one that God made with us at creation. When the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. And many pretend not to know by saying, but that wasn't me. I didn't do that. That's not fair. That's not how federal covenants work. But even setting aside Adam's representative nature, do you think you're any better off? You shall have no other gods before me. Or as Jesus restated, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind. Oh, is that all? By that command alone, Every one of us must declare with the psalmist, none is righteous, no, not one. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Occasionally I've been in restaurants for lunch or coffee shops, and I've overheard conversations where someone is excusing their sin by saying something like, no one's perfect. Even God doesn't expect perfection. And thus far, I've resisted the temptation to write Matthew 5, 48 on my napkin and slide it across the table as I leave. You know that verse? That verse is a key moment in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has just gone down the list explaining simple concepts that anger is murder, that lust is adultery, that legalism is fraud, and that the law demands that we love our enemies. You know, the simple stuff. And after Jesus explains all of that, he says, you, therefore, must be perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. God doesn't just expect perfection, For us to be in his presence without being utterly destroyed, his nature demands perfection. There is nowhere for sin or sinners to hide. God will judge. Those definitions, how we define sin, how we define sinners, aren't those another means by which we pretend not to know? We act as though we, rather than God, define these terms. 
what is consistent with his holiness and what is inconsistent with his holiness though that's what defines the terms that's what gives good and evil their meaning because God's holy nature his perfect holy nature is the rarest most unique thing in all of the universe you know we just got back from our trip in Hawaii and we saw mountainous cliffs that were set starkly against the ocean. We had magnificent canyons and craters to look at. We saw, I told you, the the sunset from 10,000 feet above sea level, the clouds below us. and, And more than once, we said to ourselves, I've never seen anything like it. But there are other places where you can see such things. But when someone like Isaiah in chapter 6 encounters God in his holiness, they do not say, I've never seen anything like it. They say, there is none like thee. There's a difference between rare and solitary. Who is like you, O Lord, Jake prayed. And the answer is no one. Not humans, not angels. There is none like him. The perfection of God's holiness is so staggering, even to angels. Have you ever considered they cry out, holy, holy, holy? As one pastor observed, they're not content with one holy, nor even two. They must say it three times, taken to the third superlative degree, holy, holy, holy. And do you realize no other attribute of God is praised like that? Not love or justice or mercy or sovereignty, just God's holiness. There's nothing that even comes close to comparing. And that explains how his judgment can be both so terrible and so right. And I tell you this, if you don't in this life grasp something of the magnitude of his holiness, you'll never be able to cope with the magnitude of his wrath. Every teenager, every young person I have ever counseled who have said, I just won't believe that God, a loving God, could be that angry, could do something like that. What they've lacked is not an understanding of his wrath. They've lacked an understanding of his holiness. As we all do. If we, like Isaiah, catch a glimpse of that solitary holiness, that, friends, is the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. And yet the world pretends not to know. What about children? They're just children. What about those trying to do their best? What about the really sincere? What about the ones who've done more good than bad? Jonathan Edwards once preached that almost every natural man that hears of hell flatters himself that he will escape it. The pattern, it's the same for all of us. The pattern is the same for all sinners. We recognize, we get, we get some sense of the guilt of our own conscience and life, even just privately perhaps. Maybe we'll never admit it to anyone that we understand that we are in trouble. And so we look for a solution. And there's only two options. There's God 
and there's not God. And so we go after these not gods. And these chapters in Isaiah are in part a survey through the God or not God options that people turn to for salvation. Your Bible, if you just look at the headings, it probably labels them an oracle concerning and then gives the name of a nation or an empire or a people's. Starting, go to uh, chapter 14. 14.24, it's about Assyria. They're the nation on the rise in Isaiah's day. They'd conquered so many other nations, and so they trusted in that power and their own vicious, relentless rulers. They were convinced that all the nations would eventually be subjugated to their unbeatable power. But their power isn't unbeatable, is it? For there's an omnipotent God. There's an all-powerful God. And he has sworn otherwise. And his purposes will stand. And after he's done using them as an instrument of his wrath, he will break them. And it won't even be hard for him. How certain is it? Look at this language. As I have planned, so it shall be. And as I have purposed, so it shall stand. Some of the great rhetorical questions of the Bible are here in Isaiah. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? You? Me? It's laughable. But many pretend not to know. Starting in 1428 is Philistia. Those are Judah's immediate neighbors to the west. Israel had shown them mercy, which sounds like a good thing, except it's exactly what God told them not to do. God told them to wipe them out. And now, given this second chance, this second life, they saw the current moment as an opportunity to rise to power again. They used to be the nation that provoked fear in the other peoples, and they thought it could be that way again. But what does God say? He says, it will not be. Verse 31, those who had been fear-invoking would themselves be afraid. That power to inspire fear on the earth, it's appealing, isn't it? As a means of security. If they fear me, I am safe. But it cannot save. For God will judge. Chapters 15 and 16 are about the Moabites, those descendants of Lot, east of Israel, just on the other side of the Dead Sea. And since no one can abuse you quite like family, every time they had the power to harm Israel, they did. And Scripture's description of Moab emphasizes their commitment to idolatry. When they weren't putting their trust in fortifications, it was idols, usually turning to the false god Chamash. So, first, God would remove their physical fortifications. He would expose them to great danger, leaving them with nowhere to turn but to their idols. And surely Chamash is strong to save, right? No. For God alone can save. Damascus, chapter 17, that's Syria, the nation that had formed an alliance with Israel, the northern kingdom, against Judah, the southern kingdom. And because of this alliance, this oracle is as much about Israel as it is about Syria. They thought their privileged status, their 
covenantal connection, their certificate of baptism, their church membership card would save them. And Syria, by extension, thought that their connectedness was something else they could add on the pile. We have military strength, and and now we have this religious connection to all of these idols and to Israel's God. A little of this, a little of that. You know these people. Cross yourself. Put a dream catcher on your rearview mirror. Hang a horseshoe over your door. Check your horoscope. But neither Israel nor Syria obeyed God. These warnings went out. There was no repentance. And so both would be crushed in his judgment and wrath. Chapter 18, the nation of Cush, likely the Ethiopians or a nearby neighbor. They were a close ally of Egypt. They relied on those alliances, their political machinations to keep them safe. And like Egypt and Syria and Assyria, they were frequently harassing God's people. But they thought that because they had all these alliances with the big boys, with the powerful nations, that they were a powerful empire. There is no power. There is no alliance that can save from the wrath of God against sin. Of course, that's true for Egypt as well. They're the subject of chapter 19. It was a bizarre turn of historical events, given the Exodus, that at this point in Israel's history, Egypt had become kind of a safety net for Israel. When the other nations rose to power and acted in aggression against Israel, they had started turning to Egypt for help in their time of need. And Egypt, They were the nation that thought they were above all others. They thought they had it all figured out. The world's strongest militaries. The world's best form of government. The world's greatest university. The world's loftiest protections. The world's most religious fervor. And under God's hand of judgment, they would crumble Not from without, but from within. God says he would stir up infighting, and thus the spirit of the Egyptians within them would be emptied. Look at chapter 19. Look at verse 14. The Lord has mingled within her, Egypt, a spirit of confusion, and they will make Egypt stagger in all its deeds. Fortifications would break down, the idols would tremble, the wisdom would come up empty. When the wrath of God and judgment came against them, everything they relied on for security would fail to save. And of course, the centerpiece of this historical survey is Babylon. They're the subject of chapter 13, parts of 14, 21. They're the quintessential biblical example of choosing not God rather than God. And God warns them of judgment He warns them he'll send out his consecrated ones to execute this judgment. Isaiah even records the taunts that God's people will get to use against Babylon as God judges her and brings down the mighty Babylon. Surely there's something that can save a nation like Babylon. No human thing. No earthly effort. God says it will Come to pass. 21.16. For the Lord, the God of Israel, has spoken. God will judge. Pretend all you want 
God will judge. Babylon in scripture is used in a couple of different ways. Geographical Babylon, the empire, but also that empire is a representative for all worldliness. Their sins are cataloged here in the book of Revelation. And regardless of what specific idols or any others that they're trusting in for salvation, Babylon serves as the reminder that ultimately all of the not God plan for salvations come down to one thing, self. Self. It's not really God versus not God. It's God versus me. So many say or live as though I know what's good enough for God. My definition of right and wrong and of holiness are what control. So many live as, what, as though what will save them from the wrath of God is my fortification, my wisdom, my religious practice, my good works, my political power, my 401k, my social acceptance, my family stability. And against all these self-devised salvations, against all this pretending not to know, God calls out repeatedly through his prophet, none of this will work. And I'll tell you why. Listen very closely to this. It's the most important thing you will ever know. You cannot be protected from God by anyone other than God. The offended party by Israel's sin and Babylon and Syria and Assyria and on down the line, the offended party by sin is God. And the judgment warned up here is not mechanical. It's not abstract. What goes around comes around. No, it is the personal an entirely justified wrath of an offended God. There's that great verse uh, Paul wrote to the Romans, Romans 5, 9. We love the, it's a great verse. There's a reason why we love it. Since therefore we've been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him. But how does it end? From the wrath of God. We tell people they need to be saved. Saved from what? From God. And who can possibly save us from God? Only God. That's why God sends out all these warnings of judgment and calls to repentance, literally, to turn away from those things and to Him. Not just stop doing this, which is how so many people read the Bible. It's turn away from every not God. Turn away from yourself and turn to me. I am the only one who can save you. Chapter 21 is filled with all this pay attention language. Isaiah urges them to prepare the table, oil the shield, listen diligently, set a watchman. He's telling us to pay attention to God's call. Most of you have been in the church for most of your lives. You children are obviously growing up in the church. Even so, have your ears grown 
dull to the call? Do we forget from time to time? Have we forgotten now how serious this offense against God is? That the God of all creation, perfect in his holiness, has been deeply and personally offended by sin. All sin, my sin, your sin. And from that righteous offense comes forth a holy and terrifying wrath a powerful and destructive fire against evil. And here he calls out to us in warning. And in these chapters of Isaiah, in all these empires, we have the negative example where except for the faithful remnant, people respond to this call by turning to not God by turning to themselves and how we must respond is by turning to God. Chapter 19 gives a glimpse of the salvation available to all who hear this call and turn to God. I'll talk more about God's people next week, but this is really interesting to me in the, in the midst of this sort of parade of horrible nations. Chapter 19 says, for example, and the Lord will strike Egypt. Yeah, okay. Striking and healing. And they will return to the Lord and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. This chapter has the remarkable phrases, Egypt, my people. Assyria, the work of my hands. And Israel, my inheritance, God will save his people, a people from all nations. He'll save us from himself. He'll save us from our idolatry and turning everywhere but him to be saved. He will save all who turn to him and turn from their sins in faith. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Consider again the Sermon on the Mount that I mentioned before. I skipped a part. I skipped a lot of parts, but I skipped one key part. What does Jesus teach right before he unpacks that standard of perfection? He, he unpacks the law to make it clear to any of us who are paying attention that we do not keep this law. And he says at the end, therefore, you must be perfect. You must keep the law. But what does he say right before all of that? Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. We cannot be perfect. Not by God's standard, not by rewriting that standard or minimizing the law. It won't work. But we can be perfect. Truly perfect in righteousness by uniting ourselves by faith to the one who fulfilled the law's demands. And that day of desolation and destruction for those who are united to Christ by faith is instead a day of great redemption. Isaiah says in chapter 25, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. He will swallow up the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. 
for the Lord has spoken. You catch that ending? Just as certain, just as unstoppable as the wrath of God against sin is the salvation of God for his people. For the Lord has spoken. That passage is glorious. Everything associated with judgment and wrath is reversed for those who he redeems. The poverty, distress, heat, exhaustion, fear, hunger, tears, even death. It's all there. It's all there. And he reverses it all. So convinced of these realities, will you pretend not to know? Or will you respond? Three things, quickly. The first I've already mentioned. We must respond to God in faith. That means responding to this call by turning away from ourselves. All the not gods that we're functionally relying on to try to save us. If I could just get this, then life would be okay. If I could just have that, then I'd be fine. Turn away from all of it. We're church-going people. We know the language. We know the right Sunday school answers. But if we do not believe that the wrath of God is just against sin, that it's coming against sinners, and that it is turned away from us only by being turned toward Christ, we will perish in our sin. We have no hope for eternity. So turn and then, second, respond with grateful and confident hope. Don't allow yourself to believe, well, well, all I did is turn, and now I have to live in this existential dread of was it enough? Did I do enough? I say I turn, but doesn't God see what I just said yesterday? I claim to believe in worship, but look what I did last week. No. As the hymn writer put it, when Satan tempts us to despair and tells us of the guilt within, upward we look and see him there who made an end of all our sin. When we believe in confidence in the holiness of God and the certainty of his judgment, we have to believe with equal confidence that he has provided for us in Christ and the security of our souls in his care. These pages are filled with frightful things but you by faith need not be afraid and finally we must respond with a renewed sense of urgency toward the lost no we don't want to be rude we don't want to be pushy toward those who do not yet believe don't we use those excuses to pretend not to know that we just don't want to? That we just don't have the courage? That we're afraid of them? If we know that the wrath of God is and will be poured out against unrighteousness, and if we know there is no safe place from this wrath except in the arms of Christ, how can we not tell them? How can we not pray for them? How can we not plead with them? Isaiah gives us this list of nations. They're easy to fear. They're mighty and they're powerful. Today, we live in an age of powerful nations, but I think even more than that, we live in an age of powerful ideologies that we're afraid of. We're afraid of social stigma. We're afraid of being marginalized. We're afraid of if we stand up to this movement or that movement or this falsehood or that falsehood, what it will cost 
us. But didn't Carlton preach that God has called us out and up? Didn't Ken preach that God has raised an exceedingly great army and we are that army? Aren't we going to sing in just a minute that our call to war is to love the captive soul but to rage against the captor? And with the sword that makes the wounded whole to fight with faith and valor, Christians, if we believe this, where is our fight? God will judge. And God will save. So as Isaiah calls us, may we believe, may we turn to God. May we rest confidently without fear in his salvation. And may we take that call to the nations, even to the ends of the earth.